Hey, everybody. Got my new friend, Tim Frederick, here today. He's a Navy SEAL, has been all over the world, has trained other Navy SEALs. It's an amazing conversation that you don't want to miss. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett. I'm in Thrive Studios sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers barber chair. But more importantly, we've got a special guest today. His name is Tim, but he's also a Navy SEAL, SEAL delivery team expert. He's been in multiple task forces, was in the Theater Special Operations Command. He's trained 300 and other 40 personnel. It's amazing. What's going on, Tim? Welcome to the show. Hello, Dallas. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Hey, well, Tim, I just, I love uh, your bio and all the things that you're into, and I love your work with veterans and, and everything. And so, first of all, I want to start by saying thank you for your service, you know, first of all. So, thanks for being on the show. And why don't you give our listeners just an idea of what took you through and your journey that took you to becoming a Navy SEAL? I was born in Natchez, Mississippi, grew up in Faraday, Louisiana, a little time in New Orleans. And then when I went into high school, moved up to East Tennessee, Seymour, Tennessee, to be specific. Big on sports, big time sports fan, fantasy football. I love playing that. It's fantasy football season, but I played baseball and football throughout my upbringing, whether it be in the summer leagues or whether it be in my schools at all level from the time you could play. When I was in high school during Seymour, I fully intended on uh, going and playing baseball. Had a couple of scholarships offers for some small schools there in East Tennessee. I graduated in 1990. And then that's when the movie came out, Navy SEALs, with Charlie Sheen, Michael Ben. I saw that basically as soon as I graduated. And I'm like, what better job could there be out there than that? And before that, I didn't really know much about the SEALs, if anything, really. That's amazing. So you literally started, you know, you had no aspirations necessarily of going into a career in the military. You started the idea of you going into the military with the idea of being a Navy SEAL. Absolutely. Like I said, I mean, I love sports. I still love sports to this day. It's more watching than playing now with where I'm at in my career in life. But that was where my heart was. That was where my focus was. My brother and I, that's what we did, whether it's football season, baseball season. Even if it wasn't, we would find ways to throw the balls around. I fully intended to go to college and play baseball, but that movie did get my interest peaked. I joined in September of uh, 1990. And I ended up spending 31 years, one month and 12 days in the military. I had to go the long route, though, because I didn't come under in under a die fair program, which was a six year program at that time. Whether it was good advice or bad advice not to come in under that program, it sent me to the fleet. I was on the USS Arleigh Burke. I got orders out of Radium and A School to go up to Bath, Maine. The ship was being built. And, you know, I'm kind of wondering to myself, what am I going up there for? My whole goal for joining the military was to go to the teams, and here I'm in the fleet. But I have to tell you, it turned out to be the best thing that happened to me as far as my military career and everything that I was able to do afterwards. Very thankful for having that fleet time. I got to go to rescue swimmer school, search and rescue 
swimmer, they call it. I was on the surface side. Being on a ship, you also have an air side. I was able to go to SEER school. I didn't have any responsibility up there as a young E2 in Maine because the ship was being built still. So I got to work out, prepare for BUDS, prepare for SAR school, SEER school, work on my ESWAS, which is Enlisted Surface Warfare Specialist. Qual, I was ready to board by the time I turned, uh, made it E4, which was a requirement. So it turned out to be very good. And I can go into some specifics later in my career to where it was very impactful for others. That's amazing. So something that started out as, you know, you kind of had set the goals Navy SEAL, then you just kind of felt like you got a little sidetracked because of the program that you were put in. That's interesting. So tell me this, I mean, because there's a lot on television and the internet, you know, of that hell week and, and, and becoming a Navy SEAL. Is that process, what was that process like for you? After you've gone through six years in the Navy, you've had a lot of training. You're very adept at what you do already. You finally make it to going for the Navy SEALs. What was that process like for you? I always tell people with BUDS, basic underwater demolition SEAL training, I was in class 199, but I always tell people, if you can do that physical assessment and uh, physical test, the run, swim, pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, so forth, and meet the timeline, then you can graduate that program. And then that goes the same for any special operations program or basically anything that anybody wants to do, whatever industry they're working in. If you can meet the requirements to get in, then you can be successful as long as you have that no quit mentality, that continuous improvement, continuous learning type mindset, then you can do well, you will thrive. It's definitely a hard course. It's hard physically, but I'd say even more so it's hard mentally. There's a weed out process. And then when you have any type of weed out process, there's things that go on to where you got to get your numbers to a certain level to where you can give everybody that's still there quality training. It's important. There's games when there's weed out processes that is played to where some people just can't excel, that you're not going to win no matter what you do. You know, whether everybody fails to run, you know, you know that not everybody in the class is going to fail to run, but there's times when that happens and you didn't get that slow, but it's just a process. Clean in your room. Not everybody's going to pass that, whether you put two hours into it or 30 minutes into it. You know, you're probably not going to pass, you know, so some people can't accept that when they know I put two hours into that, the cleaning of my room and I just failed that inspection. They can't get past that. They can't get over that. So little examples like that, and there's many more that we can talk about. But point is, is if you can get in, then you can graduate. Just never quit. Always have the mindset to where I'm going to get through this and then break it down in chunks. Go into whether it's child to child, especially in a hell week type environment where you might only get four or five hours of sleep, not exaggerating, that entire week from Sunday at dark. And in the winter, it gets darker early to Friday around noon or one. You'll get three to four hours of sleep. You might doze off, but you'll get quickly woken up by one of the instructors that's there. But you just break it down in chunks. If somebody looks at it as the whole week and you're on Sunday night or Monday and it's hard, you know, if you're looking at it that way, you're probably not going to do well. But if you just get to chow and then you get to the next chow or food service, you might eat outside, you might eat in the cold water. But if you can just get to that point, 
then set another benchmark. But but I like the chow to chow routine. <laughs> chow to chow. I love it. That's so good. I mean, I think that's really great advice, though, because what you're saying is, is that one of the techniques that you use, the mental, and it's almost like mental games that you're playing because you're getting some games. You said you're getting some mental games played on you right during that week. And so one of the things that you're using to combat that was playing your own game. And your own game was, let's just focus on what's in front of us right now. And if I can just make it to that, you know, I know some people start working out and they're like, all right, if I can just get to, you know, if I just walk quarter mile or I walk the straightaway, you know, I'll just do that. And then after they walk the straightaway, we'll walk another one. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're running and it's good. I love that. And whether, you you know, if you're going into college, if you're starting a new job, if you're going into a new career field, any kind of transition, you know, no matter what you do, if you're facing something that's really difficult, I think that's fantastic advice. You know, if you want to live in the last 10%, I think one of the things that you're sharing that is so meaningful is that break it down and focus on just getting to the next step. Because a lot of times you want to have this vision, and then I'm totally guilty of this. You want to have this vision planning. You want to have this you know, big, long plan three to five years out. And this is what we're going to do, take over the world. And you can't make it to the next chow, right? So it's chow to chow, baby. I love that. I love that. That's so good. Was there anything out of that? Because it, to me, it sounds like it's geared to be a shock to your system in just pretty much every facet, mentally, physically. What was the biggest for you, either the biggest surprise that came out of it or the biggest challenge for you going through that process? I would say I was out there from September and then around the holidays, they form up less classes around Thanksgiving and Christmas. So if you're in, at the time it was called PTRR and you were just waiting to form up, you still got hammered, we used to call it, as far as by the instructors and you got surf tortured. And it didn't even count. And you would have a lot of people that would quit because you were put in a lot of uncomfortable positions to where you're like, well, this is not even counting toward our six months here. And that's best case. So might not be for me. But again, you can't look at it that way. And and then you're getting put into all these uncomfortable type situations in this cold water. And let's face it, around September through March, And even in the summer, if you've touched that Pacific Ocean, even down south in San Diego, those currents, that water's pretty cold. You know, it's fairly cold. So for me, the cold water. And my swim buddy, he didn't mind the cold water as much as me, but I would much rather the extra physical training. People would say, I don't know about that. Yeah, I I would rather eight-count bodybuilders. And trust me, I don't like eight-count bodybuilders. They tire you out pretty quick. And they're very uncomfortable, especially when you do them for an extended period of time. But you can give me, even to this date, I would rather somebody give me eight count bodybuilders instead of getting surf tortured, especially in the winter. So for me, and then everybody's different. Everybody's body's different. I come from the South. You know, everybody could probably tell that. You know, I would have much rather had gone through in the summer. I formed up, even though went through all of the training, getting up to class up day in January. I think it was the 3rd of 95. And then that's a cold time of the year and that water's cold. And and the instructors know it. Trust me, you are always wet. You're always sandy. That makes you always uncomfortable. That was the hardest part for me. And then that's mental. You know, that's all mental. There's nothing really physical about it. It's just uncomfortable. 
if you're doing eight counts bodybuilders running up a sand berm, it's about 15 to 20 feet high, soft sand, you know, making yourself a sugar cookie. Yes, that's uncomfortable. The sand rubs you. You know, you're, you got blisters all over you, but it's all mental in how you deal with it. But in getting back to our last talking point, I always have a plan. I mentioned that I go from chow to chow or I break things down in segment. But it's very important, no matter what you do, is to have a plan, have your goals, and to have contingencies along the way. Not just a contingency, multiple contingencies. So that mindset, it's always there for me. But even when you break things down in simple terms, like I mentioned, you have to still plan. You have to have a good plan and you have to have contingencies because something is going to go different than what you're expecting at some point. Let's talk about that because I'm sure as you get into, after you go through buds, you're in the SEAL, you're on the SEAL team, you're going through that, you're going through missions, you know, and you've been in the military for 31 years. So it's incredible the amount of missions and, and activity you've seen over that time period. Tell us about that from a standpoint of your experience. To what lengths and did you go to in some of your missions uh, in terms of setting? You said it was you have to have a good plan and not just one contingency, but multiple contingencies. What does that look like for you? Yes, contingencies broken down by phases or segments. Like I mentioned, my child to child. Things might not go as I had planned it getting from that child to child. So I have to have contingencies or a way of thinking to work. I'm going to get around whatever roadblock occurs between those two meal times. In my case, I spent half of my career as enlisted. I went from the most junior rank up to E8 in 13 years. The last half of my career, I went to the dark side, so to speak, was an officer. It's totally different leadership styles, but good leaders will adapt to whatever level they're at. And whether you worked under great leaders or when you worked under bad leaders, there's always something positive or something that you can take from someone else and add to your toolbox, whether you're an enlisted person, an enlisted leader, or an officer. I want to say there is nothing that can get done in our teams without the our enlisted operators. That is who does 90% of our work. You know, that's where our snipers are. That's where our breachers are. That's where our jump masters are for the most part. So all the work goes through them. So for if there's an officer that wants to do something his way and don't want to listen to their experience, because that's also where their experience is, is in the enlisted side of things, then you're going to have a rough period in getting through your career. I love how you point that out because you are distinguishing these characteristics between enlisted and officer. But yet you are saying when we were, we were talking about going into contingency plans and, and having a plan and contingencies, you know, one of the things you point out, I think is so important, especially for any team, whether you're in a nonprofit, whether you're in a business or, or whether you're in the ministry or the military, it doesn't matter. If you've got a team, your point is this, you're wanting that enlisted person to give you feedback because like you said, it's where the experience is held. I love how you phrased that. If you're leading that team you've got to be open to those feedbacks from the ground up, you know, because the, like you said, that's where the experience is. So sometimes as leaders, if you're a visionary, if you're a team leader, and it's been a while since you've been in the trenches, if you're a manager, if we get disconnected from the actual daily work, we lose sight and it makes us less effective as planners. And so I love how you just brought that in from your team. You said how important 
it is for us to get that feedback to be successful. And ultimately, that feedback is going to give you insights to change the plan or to add and change contingencies that would make it successful. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. ThinkMove Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams, We help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. To me, it all starts with knowing your people. When I say know your people, it's just not know the the person. It's know what they bring to the table and everything that they offer. Know what their education level is. Know where they went to school. Know their wife's name, their kid's name. For the most part, a good leader, they're going to do that. They recognize right up front that how important it is to be a good listener at whatever level you're in. That's very important. But if you don't listen to that experience and someone that's been there, especially if you're new and and everybody's a new person at one time or another, you have to learn the ropes at whatever organization you're going into by the people that's been there and done it. I think that's a great point. It's very interesting because if you are inexperienced, it's fine. It's okay. You can still lead people. You can have leadership characteristics and the qualities to lead others well, even coach others well, without necessarily having the depth of experience that they have in a specific skill area. Because, and this goes in business or or nonprofits as well, because if you're coming into a new team or you're going into a new business or you're going into a new industry, I mean, I've helped companies in a lot of different industries. And when you go and get inserted into a new industry, it's like, it's got its own lingo. It's got its own words. They they, They have their own, the way they refer to things is totally different. And they all have their own subject matter experts. And then they're looking and they may be looking at you to lead. And the last thing, you know, you kind of have to check your pride at the door. You know, you have to say, look, you know, I'm here to serve you. We're here to win together. I think that's a great point that you make because ultimately it's the leaders that are most effective at engaging their teams of experts to get the most out of them that's actually going to create the team that finishes the strongest. So I think that's, yeah, that's fantastic. So tell me about this because you're talking about a team that you were leading I know as a Navy SEAL and in SEAL teams, they're working in a lot of cross-functional things. So you're outside of, you know, whether it's gathering intel or have you had experiences? What, I guess, could you share in general what it looks like when you're working with other teams, you're on like a larger different organizations? What does that look like when it works well for you and your experience? And what does that look like when it's not worked well? It all starts with communication, no matter who you're working with, the comms, the communication has to be good both ways. And, and that's within an internal to an organization and external in working with others. 
Regarding my career, I served at a couple of SEAL teams, SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 3, but I also served at in the SEAL delivery vehicle teams at Naval Special Warfare Group 3, which it's no longer around now, but at the time it was the undersea proponent for SOCOMS, Special Operations Command, four-star level commander down in Tampa. Also a couple of the special boat teams and then Group 4. And each of the missions were all part of Naval Special Warfare. How the training, for the most part, that's conducted at the SEAL teams is completely different in a lot of cases or in a lot of core blocks of training than it is at the SEAL delivery vehicle team. There's different things that you have to consider. And then the same thing with our special boat teams. And then with the special boat teams in particular, you have three commands. You have two coastal teams, one in Coronado on the West Coast, one in Norfolk, Virginia on the East Coast. And you have another team. Those are two coastal teams. And you have another team to where the mission, the environment that they work in is completely different. The Riverine team down in uh, Stennis, Mississippi, right there on the state line of uh, Mississippi and Louisiana. So the training, you have to compensate for that as a training officer, or if you're running training, or if you're the senior members of a respective platoon or troop, it all has to be taken into account. There's different equipment, there's different techniques and procedures that need to be in place, and everybody needs to be on this page to be effective. Getting back to the communication, like, let's go into the after 9-11, the military, for the most part, completely changed. And some people, ever since 9-11, has been in combat-type environments or deployments ever since then. And that's amazing. My hat's off to them. They're still running hard, and they're still going in harm's way every nine months, year to a year and a half. And then whether they do a three-month deployment, a six-month deployment, or a 12-month deployment, they're still running hard. They're still away from their family. They're still in an environment that can go from being okay to not okay in any way, shape, or form. And they always have to be prepared for that. But it takes a toll on people. It takes a toll on them mentally, and it takes a toll on them physically. So the communication has to be there, not with just the operators, but you have all of the support departments that you, let's face it, you can't do anything without your admin section, without your supply section, your logistics arm, your weapons and ammo arm, and uh, so forth, the engineering side of things. They all come with their own SMEs. They do business different. They're trained different, but they have their roles. And they're a critical part of success for any organization. So the comms have to be effective across all those divisions, all of those different departments. And this is internal, up and down the chain of command that you're at. But go into that different environment, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Syria, pick place. Then you're starting to communicate with the NGOs the non-governmental organizations. You got the interagency network, huge network, all kind of different acronyms coming at you there. You have to be able to communicate effectively with each of them. And then let's face it, there's different missions than yours, especially with the NGOs. You might not even be able to be seen with them. But when you're in a combat type of environment, you have to communicate with them. You have to be effective. They have to know where you're at and what you're doing to a degree or they could enter a bad area to where they're not supposed to be there. Nobody accounted for them to be there and bad things can happen. So the comm still has to be there. They got a completely different mission. They don't want to be seen with you, but you have to have a great working relationship both ways to make everybody come out safe, go home, 
and then but do well and succeed. You got the interagency network, you got the other services to where if you cross battle space lines, if you don't communicate, what do you think is going to happen? It's not going to be good. You have to know who's there. You have to do the homework. And it's not always apparent, especially when you're first getting into a theater, whether it be Afghanistan or Iraq, who's operating where. Yeah, after you've been there for years, it somewhat becomes apparent, but not always. Sometimes people are not exactly where they're supposed to be, but you have to account for it. You have to plan for it. You have to have the comms procedures in place to where if that situation arises, you got your rules of engagement, you got your escalation of force procedures, and that's all different as well. But they have to know yours, you have to know theirs. So you can see that dynamic type environment, the leadership, whether you're a senior enlisted leader or you are an officer running your platoon, your troop, or your task unit or task force, whatever level you may be working at, four-star level, all the way down to the most junior level. Comms is where it starts and it has to be effective and then you have to have a good plan. So tell me this, if you were going to give somebody a young leader starting out and it may be in the military or it may be in just the private sector, what advice would you give them as it relates to communication? Because it is so critical and just, I mean, I can't even wrap my head around the dynamic environment that you are facing. You know, you're talking about you know, the supply chains and the weapons and the and then you've got admin and then you're worried about, you know, are you crossing over lines in, in this dirt that you're not supposed to be crossing over and it's life or death and it's that's just a lot. What advice coming out of that experience, what advice would you give someone that's, you know, early in their career about communication? One is be a good listener. Two is come in with the attitude and respect for everybody, not just your bosses. Know your people know their strengths, know their weaknesses. Because let's face it, I mean, you can be the best operator in the world, but if you don't work well as a team and you're not a good teammate and team player, then you're not good for that organization. It all goes back to being able to communicate. And that's verbal comms. That's comms in writing. That's comms with everybody that's involved. Nonverbal comms, if you come in with a scowl on your face and you're not approachable, then that's not approachable. Uh, The boss is in a bad mood today, so nobody's going to come in and talk to the boss. That's just things that I've seen that works, but your comms, verbal, nonverbal, in writing, a good leader has to have them. Everybody has to be informed. Everybody has to know your vision, know your commander's guidance. We call it CCIRs, the wake-up criteria, basically, whether it's 10 points or 25 points. If you have wake-up criteria, everybody needs to know by number, what that wake-up criteria is. Not just the other leaders. Everybody needs to know because there's things that if something happens, especially when somebody's hurt, whether it be in training or overseas, then your boss has to know. And there's a timeline that usually comes associated with those CCIRs, depending on what level they are and how bad something is or, or what happened. And then if somebody comes to wake you up and you tell them that, I hate being woke up, you know, you might not get woke up again if you are the boss. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, that consistency. Not wake up criteria at that point because you just scared everybody off. The 06 ain't going to come wake the 08 or 09 up, you know, because 09 don't want to be woke up. But yet it's his wake up criteria. Everybody has to understand it. And uh, that guidance has to be clear and concise at all levels. So that for a new leader coming in, You have to know things like that right away. 
but you have to listen. You have to rely on your experience and you have to take care of your people. Somebody can tell in a heartbeat, especially from the community I'm in, but, but we have some smart people. But if somebody is just trying to get through their two-year tour, because a lot of times that's what our officers rotate. You'll have our, our, our top-level leaders come in and they're there for two years. Or, and if you're in Afghanistan for a year, they may come in for six months, three months, and they're just trying to do their time in that theater or at that command, move on unscathed. People, the enlisted and the junior officers and the people that work for them, if somebody comes in with that attitude, you can tell pretty quick that they're just trying to do their tour, get out of here unscathed, go on to their next milestone. Their heart and soul is not into that organization. They're there because they got to be there. It don't take much whether somebody says it or not. You don't have to. People can read it and people know. We could have written a book off of all the value that you just gave. And so for the new leaders that's coming in, I love that. And I think that's really cool how you associated communication with not checking a box and giving your heart and soul because it doesn't matter if you're communicating at work, in the military, or with your spouse. You cannot escape your attitude. You can't hide it. If you come in, it doesn't matter what your goals are. If your heart isn't in it and it isn't right, you're not going to be able to hide it. And so if you approach a communication with an employee or with a boss or with a spouse and your goal is to share some information and achieve a certain result and you share it and your heart's not in it, then you're just exposed because there's an inconsistency there, which really destroys some trust. And I think that as we, as we move in organizations, as we move in teams, as we try to finish strong in our life, one of the things that we're looking for is consistency. And I love how you, you know, called out traits of a natural good communicator, good listener. It's funny because the first thing you said in terms of communication was not communicating, but listening to communication. I love that. I think that's so true. I do want to talk a little bit about veterans. I know you're very passionate about veterans. Tell us a little bit about that because you said, you know, since 9-11, everything has changed and there's just something going on somewhere all the time. And so we've got guys constantly going back and forth. So tell us a little bit about, about some of the challenges that you've seen. As far as veterans in transition, that's a, you can look at that as a very broad term. It can mean someone that whether they've served five years or whether they served 40 years in the military, there's going to come a point where they have to transition from their military service over to the private sector. But whether you serve five years or whether you serve 40 years, you're about to transition out. And that's not just a transition for the service member but the family, and then your next employer as well, to where you have to be prepared for that transition. And I'm still in transition. So uh, for the people that haven't had anything or they come off of a deployment to a combat zone, no less, and they're out of the military in two months, three months, and then everybody else that's staying in that deployed with them to that same combat zone, they're going into another workup, but this person's about to change their life change their family's life. In some cases, they don't even find a job. So transitioning over to the private sector, to the civilian workplace, it takes planning, it takes being trained, and then there's no cookie cutter approach to this. Uh, there's no one size fits all. There's so many programs, so many nonprofits that are doing this great work, and the leaders at all of the organizations need to learn about 
each of these nonprofits, the Commit Foundation, ACP, Catalyst Program. And then that's just like, what, four or five? Big Sky Bravery. There is so many out there, but the leaders in these organizations, just as important as the people that's about to transition over from service to the civilian workplace, they have to find that right fit for them, their situation, their family, and and that's going to prepare them to work for that next dream job that they have or employer. So that's part of it. Another part of Veterans in Transition, I mentioned 9-11, and the military was completely changed after that date, and still people going strong to this date, running hard, working extremely hard away from their families, sacrificing for the good of our nation. And so where we're free, you know, if something happens to where not everybody gets to come home, that's sad, you know, and that takes a toll on leaders, especially if there's something that that leader could have done different. Sometimes it's just wrong place, wrong time. There's nothing that anybody did wrong. But very few leaders look at it that way. They're going to look at it as if I would have done this, or if I would have timed it different here or there, then this wouldn't have happened or this would have been unlikely to happen and so forth. So you can armchair quarterback things all day long. There's really nothing that anybody can say to make it right. When they come back, depending on what happened, not everybody's immediately ready to be integrated directly back into their community from that environment. Sometimes people have to notice that. Hopefully the member notices something's not right. I'm not ready yet. And they say something to somebody, but not everybody does. You know, but uh, there are people that know them, their friends, their peers, their leaders. If it's not right, hopefully they notice it before they get integrated back into the community. They're not just noticing it, getting it into the right program that's right for them, their situation, their family, where they don't go back into the community too early or too soon. They don't get back with their family too early or too soon. And then who to hear that they come back from six-month deployment, nine-month deployment, a year, and then, wait a minute, you're, I can't go right back to my family? That's extremely sad. I have to say that sometimes some people need some extra assistance. Some people need some extra help. Some people admit it. Some people don't. There's no cookie-cutter approach. There's no one-size-fits-all. It has to be tailored. That's all considered under the Veterans Under Transition umbrella, and it's not just somebody that's leaving the service. That is a unique challenge for military personnel that especially have seen combat and been deployed. And I do think that I'm glad that you have a lot of programs and they have a lot of programs that's available to assist in that because that would be a very confusing. It's like, I think that that would be so difficult. That would just be incredibly difficult to manage that. And so I'm glad that you're helping others that you connect with as they go through that process. So that's really good. I would say too, I think it's very encouraging if some of the toughest, baddest dudes, you know, on the planet need help when they come back and transition in. If you're going through an experience, if anybody, you can't live in the last 10% and help others if you can't help yourself and you can't give what you don't have. And so if you're a leader in an organization, whether you've gone through a personal tragedy or whether you are, are in an organization and you've gone through tremendous change, if you're dealing with something, whether it's addiction or whatever else, just encourage you. I think that's great to hear Tim, talk about this, how important it is that you give yourself enough grace 
to take care of yourself. I think that's really important for everybody, but definitely, definitely glad, especially important for those veterans in transition. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I do want to get to a part that we talked about talking about before, and that is one of the ways that you're engaging with these guys and girls is Warriors and Whiskey Club. Tell us about that, because that just sounds really exciting. (laughs) It sounds fun. Warriors and Whiskey Club, that's just another way that the three founders of this wonderful organization found a way to bring everybody back together. Whatever branch you served in, whatever first responder or type of first responder that a person may be, the families of the service members, the veterans, the first responders, With the Warriors and Whiskey Club in particular, all of those people that work in those capacities are welcome to join. You can go on Facebook. You can go on to LinkedIn. They have a website, and I'll make sure you get that website. It's a way to where somebody, when they do get out, whether they go out to the middle of nowhere, whether they go out to West Texas, we have approximately, and this number's not 100% right, but approximately 70 ambassadors now to where these ambassadors. I'm an ambassador for the Pensacola, Florida area. One of my jobs as an ambassador is to set up functions, whether it be at a whiskey club, whether it be in a park with just coolers or whatever you bring. Uh, And you can bring Pepsis, you can bring Coke, you can bring water, whatever you want to bring. The whole point is to bring people together wherever you're at and for these ambassadors to put functions together, bring families together. Bring friends, tell stories, combat stories, see stories, funny stories, have the wives, the girlfriends, the basically just a big gathering to where if something were to be going wrong with somebody, that somebody that knows the person or if somebody just sees something that's just not right with an individual, maybe it's you can find some creative ways to get that person some help. But Warriors and Whiskey Club is for first responders, family of first responders, military, family of military. Veterans, family of veterans, basically anybody can join. And then there's also a Veterans Whiskey Club, and there's a Veterans Cigar Club. Those clubs are for veterans or service members to join, but we have about 20,000. This is approximate numbers in each of these different clubs. You got to come with a plan. You got to get there safe. You got to get home safe because it could involve alcohol. It's Warriors and Whiskey Club, Veterans Whiskey Club. But the whole point is get people together. If there is a problem, hopefully someone notices it and have fun while you're doing it. And what better way to do it than over a drink or a Coke or. Yeah, I think that's great. And we would, we obviously are big fans of building community and building connection. Definitely need that if you're going to live in the last 10%. So thank you for your work on that. The Warriors and Whiskey Club will add the link to the show notes so that you can find out more information about that and uh, sign up and sign up to be an ambassador or sign up to go and be a part of one of the local clubs. It just uh, seems like a really good organization. And thank you for using that to build a community to, to see and meet the needs of servicemen and women that may or may not be, be struggling. I think that's a great avenue to do that and have a good time. So now we have some things in common. So me and Tim both are severely outnumbered at home. I have three daughters and you have uh, two daughters as well, right? We both have that in common. And the other thing is we're both, we love some sports. And so Tim, now you were talking about fantasy football. So we got to at least hit this. Now, do you have, who's your team? Like, what's your team? I know fantasy kind of gets everybody. You're kind of interested in multiple teams, but I know if you're from, you know, Mississippi or Louisiana, you got you a team. So who's your team? Well, I'm a Saints fan. Ah, okay. 
you know, win or lose uh, with fantasy football. I don't go. That's where my heart is, is with the Saints. But I separate where my heart lies and where my head tells me to go. Uh, <laughs> when you make decisions based off of where your heart is, base them off of where your head is. The analytical data that is available now to everybody. And then for people that pay attention to especially football like I do, you kind of know that. And, you know, I, I know way more than I should uh, about <laughs> fantasy football each of the players. I love football, baseball, and, and I do love playing fantasy football. I've been pretty successful at it, whether it be DraftKings, FanDuel, and, and the season-long leagues. And if you go that route, but there's so much research that goes into the different positions and so many things to consider, whether it be weather, health, the state of the line, the health of the receivers, the health of the running backs, you know, so you can go on and on. I love talking about fantasy football and sports in general. So oh, that's I awesome. Go on a lot no, more, that's but. so good. Well, listen, see, you just translated all those skills really nicely because you've got plans and backup plans. You're going down to the nth degree of the data. You're looking at the, uh, you know, the analytics on all this. So, I mean, I'm sure the listeners know exactly why you are so successful on the SEAL teams as well, because, uh, you know, that analytical ability is not lost in either category. I'm still in the heart phase. I just have my teams and I just, you know, I'll just pick and, and cheer for them on game day and be sad if they lose. But you are way, way down the road and more serious. So that's awesome. So we do ask most of the time we ask our guest on the show if they have somebody they would like to listen to or, or hear on the last 10% and love to see, is there someone that you'd like to recommend that we reach out to and get on the show? I would like for an outstanding leader that I had the privilege of working for when I first came into the teams from, I'll call him Rosie. I'll forward his info to you via SEPCORE, but Rosie is an outstanding leader. He was my assistant platoon commander in my first platoon. He was my platoon commander in my second platoon. It's hard to change a culture, and it takes time to change a culture. Mm -hmm. But an individual and a leader, and then I stress leader like Rosie, can come change all those levels I just mentioned. You pick one. He can do it very quickly within a couple of weeks to a month. He can change a climate from a poor climate or a mediocre climate to a healthy working climate. Well, I can't wait to meet this guy. He sounds incredible. So yeah, we're going to have to reach out to him and get him now. I don't know that I'll call him Rosie right out the gate, <laughs> but I'll, uh, we'll, we'll start there. We'll, we'll start with the information you send. Well, I do have a quick question. How can listeners get a hold of you if they want to reach out, especially if they're a veteran in transition or if they just want to find out more information about some of the program, how can people find you? If you're dealing with the VA or if you're about to start communicating with the VA, I will make sure you have my email address. Obviously, you already have my LinkedIn info, my Facebook info. So if you are interested in the Warriors and Whiskey Club, if you're a veteran in transition, if you just got more questions about uh, Navy SEALs and just all that, Tim is available on LinkedIn, Facebook. We'll put those links on the show notes. And so you can check them out after the show and reach out to him. Tim, it's just been an honor and a privilege to talk with you today on the show. And thank you again for your service. So thankful and grateful for your sacrifice for this country. And we have a special request. We'll get to that on the way out. But uh, thank you again, Tim, for everything. And, and maybe look forward to having you on the show again. We've got some more things we can cover. So thank you again for being on The Last 10%. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here on your show. 
I really appreciate you giving me this platform. And, and then at the end of the day, hopefully it can make a positive difference for others. Absolutely. All right, we're going to head out by request. We're going to head out on Tim's song that he asked to uh, have at. So here we go. 